we couldn't see each other. We were in the night most of the time, you see. Anti-aircraft gun would get you, yes. Or a, or a searchlight. Because we were low, the Germans could see us. And if you got caught in the slipstream of another aircraft, you know, you'd sort of be thrown around like mad. There was tension in the plane. We were all holding our breath. You could hear them exploding shells from the anti-aircraft guns. They were waiting for us. You don't expect to die, but you accept. From Uniting, this is My Life at War, a six-part series featuring first-hand experiences of the everyday Australians who served in World War II. We spent the last year capturing these stories because we believe they need to be told. Each week, hear from some of our last remaining veterans and war historian David Wilson as we follow their journey through World War II. I'm Jefferson Spratt. And I'm Lee Taylor. Part two, war. Two different soldiers. There's the soldier before the war, at the war, and after the war. There is a difference. I don't know what it is. That's just how I feel. This is James Grice. He's 98 years old and served in the Army's 3rd Battalion, 6th Division, during World War II. He served in conflicts in Greece and Palestine. However, his memory of the war is blurred. But he shared this one profound reflection. In war, there are different soldiers. There's the soldier before the war, during the war, and after the war. So who were these different soldiers? What did they do before the war? And what were the experiences that would eventually change them? To find out, we're going to hear stories from four veterans who served in campaigns across Europe and the Pacific, starting with... My name is Robert Marshall. I'm 96 years old, and I was a flying officer in World War II. Like many of the veterans we heard from in episode one, Robert's parents did not support his decision to serve. And uh, my father was a pacifist and not very happy for me to have to serve. However, I was called up into the army, but I had already volunteered to go into the Air Force, mainly because the uniforms were more tailored. <laughs> when I went overseas, we weren't allowed to write letters saying what we were doing, except you know, going to the pictures or something. And so they really didn't know I was in action until one morning they opened the morning paper and there was a photo of me saying I'd been in a bombing raid the night before in Germany. So that was a terrible shock for them. There will be many missions that Robert's parents would never know about, like the bombing raid over Fortsheim in Germany. Robert would lead his crew on a daring night raid into a heavily defended area. But what Robert didn't know was that the enemy was expecting them. If you knew you were going to an area where there was a lot of anti-aircraft guns, you'd feel a bit more nervous. You know, we felt nervous at times, let's face it. But there wasn't a lot of chat on the intercom, you know. We were all pretty silent. However, the anti-aircraft fire was not Robert's main concern. The incendiary bombs that were dropped by their fellow airmen had illuminated the night, making it much easier for the enemy to spot them. Because we were low, 
the Germans could see us silhouetted with our above us, you see, and knowing you were silhouetted against the fires. I saw 15 planes go down that night as I went home. I think the German intelligence must have known it was on the way, seeing other planes going down, 15, you know, in flames. That, that's something that is very much in my mind. It's just so incredible to think that Robert was only 18 when he enlisted into the Air Force. And here he is, on the other side of the world, responsible for the lives of the crew and so many others. This was something that so many of our veterans spoke about. My main job was, as a navigator, making sure that we flew over the target at the appropriate time. It might be a an ammunition dump, or it might be a ship. Naturally, there were explosions when he said, bomb's gone, and they saw a puff of smoke. This is Lester, our navigator from episode one. Remember, he followed in his father's footsteps by enlisting in the Air Force. I must admit, after a couple of dud bomb drops, I had misgivings. At first I felt I'd let them down. And I was very uh, disconsolate, but they reassured me that there are lots of mistakes in air warfare. And that was one of them that happened from time to time. But Lester says, even when he did hit the target... You feel a sense of guilt because you don't know what harm you've done. I mean, it sounds rather grotesque in a way that you should rejoice in the demolition of the target, but it's them or us. I saw war in all its varied circumstances. Very often it underscored the, the waste, the terrible waste and tragedy of war with puffs of smoke from exploding bombs and then silence. So, do you, do you feel lucky? I'm lucky. I'm lucky to be here. The, the American pilots, they are great. They're really, really great. We looked after each other. This is Flight Lieutenant Alan Alcock, who also goes by the nickname Tex. We'll explain about that nickname later. Alan's 93 years old, and he volunteered to fight alongside the US pilots on the USS Enterprise. We met Alan at his United home in Canberra, and you could not miss him. He is a bold and colourful man. He's got gold rings on four of his fingers and a medallion dangling across his chest. President Roosevelt called for volunteer pilots to be trained to add to their fleet of pilots. They were shorter pilots, and um, they offered me two pound, five shillings a week to go to the College of Civil Aviation at uh, Mascot to become a pilot. Dad said to me, young'un, you've got to go and help fight your country. I sure did. Dad then went down and got me into the 
list, and there's only 36 of us were chosen, and uh, we learned to fly. Age 15, I put my age up to get into the US Air Force. A lot of uh, young chaps lied about their age because flying a, a tiger moth is beautiful. And uh, we've we done our 150 hours. So let's go back to Alan's nickname. Now, the word tex came from Tokyo Rose in Japan. I used to go to a frequency to pick up Tokyo Rose. Greetings, everybody. This is your number one enemy, your favourite playmate, Okanan of Radio Tokyo. We're ready again for a business assault on your morale. 75 minutes of music and news for our friends, I mean our enemies in the South Pacific. Alan, who we'll call Tex from now on, explains that Tokyo Rose was an English-speaking radio presenter who featured on a Japanese program beamed out over the Pacific. Tex would tune in to the same frequency as Tokyo Rose. And uh, I used to sing cowboy songs when I were up about 8,000 feet above the cloud and, uh, uh, and she named me Tex and it's stuck to my name ever since. I just sang... Can I sleep in your barn tonight, mister? For it's cold lying out on the ground. In the cold northwest wind it is whistling and I have no place to lie down. Uh, the idea of singing was to put more energy into me uh, and uh, make me more contented. Well, take out Rose and the radio, she say, oh, there's 10,000 zeros on the way to get you, Tex. We're going to drop you like a stone. <laughs> but Tokyo Rose's threats were not something to sing about, which Tex was about to discover. Oh, in the uh, Battle of uh, the Marshall Islands, the Japanese commander decided to send in five zeros, torpedo zeros, to uh, sink the Enterprise. The Japanese were about 700 miles away and we took off. If they shoot at me, we've got to shoot back to save your life. It's a matter of survival. And uh, they fired at me and I, well, the, the aircraft got hit and uh, I felt a hot pain in my neck. When I went down, I was still alive and active and uh, they said, oh, you've been shot. Yeah, it went in, but it must have ricocheted, uh, um, actually, to the uh, rear of my neck. And uh, I didn't know, all I felt was a hot pain. Bill Hall, he was a machine gunner on the um, Enterprise, and uh, he um, seen blood running down the side of my neck. Oh, I was alarmed, you know. I mean, anyone tells you you've just been shot, you uh, kind of uh, lose your block a little, you know. They put me in the operating theatre and cut out the dum-dum. They called it the dum-dum bullet. And uh, the, on the back of my neck is a big scar. In most of our conversations with the veterans, there was this one word that we'd hear frequently. And there's an awful lot of luck in it, you know. Awful lot of luck. The units near us were attacked, but we were lucky. I was lucky. I had a good captain. 
And of course, we lost quite a lot of them. But nonetheless, uh, uh, we escaped, we were lucky. This is Doug Sando, our farm boy pilot from country South Australia, who we met in episode one. Now based mainly in Darwin, he flew the Liberator heavy bombers throughout New Guinea and the islands. It could always happen to you, <laughs> yes, absolutely, yeah. It's always your last time, you never know. It's only got to hit you in a motor or somewhere, somewhere underneath, and you go down. One missed me by six inches <laughs> on, on a mission. So I, so I was very close near the end. Bang, and through it went. And of course, there's a nasty hole down there where the bullet went through, about just under me, just below my seat. So I may not have been here. Lucky me, <laughs> that's what we'd say. That's exactly our reaction. When we asked our veterans why they thought they survived the war and others didn't, they simply put it down to luck. Doug said, every day felt like your last. And for some, they would be right. Now we were attacked maybe down on the ground. We were low level flying and they were flying back. You always went into doubles, so you go, one after the other. We went in and got through all right. He went through and down he went, six blokes killed. He said, did you see that, Doug? I said, yes, but I don't believe it. It's nasty to see an aeroplane full of blokes go down like that, but that's something you've got to accept. Think, oh, isn't that bad luck? And that stays with you for quite a while. In fact, I think it stays for your lifetime. The situation these men witnessed was just devastating. Many months ago, they were just everyday Australians, and now this. How do you deal with loss? How do you deal with seeing mates die? Who could you talk to about this? Well, back then, it wasn't the same as we have today. This is war historian David Wilson. In the Air Force, for instance, they had debrief sessions after missions. They talked about the operational and tactical aspects of what they'd just done. But they didn't talk about personal losses. Remember back in those days, the attitude was that big men don't cry. And it probably wasn't the done thing to show any emotion. So who did they talk to? Well, essentially, it was a small group immediately surrounding them. The same people who saw the same things that they saw, experienced the same losses. It's a test of men and responsibility because we all depend on each other. And I was able to see my friends in a different light. See, it was an Australian squadron. A lot of the officers were Australian, very matey. Once you got in an aeroplane together, you were just like all mates. You live together, you ate together, and went on leaves together. It was a terrific feeling. In episode one, Raymond shared his experience of training in the 110th Brigade workshops after enlisting. During his service with the Army in New Guinea, Raymond tells us that no matter how bad the situation was, he always had someone watching his back. Uh, we worked for six months without a day off. Uh, sometimes we'd have guard duty at night. And we were blacked out at most of the time at night so you couldn't light a light. You wasn't protected, you were just a unit stuck out here. There was no defence line. You, you had to look after your own. 
You always had someone to back you up and cover your back. You valued your friendship. Terrific. They were another family. Good memories. Good mates. Couldn't better them. As well as being able to rely on your comrades within your own units and squadrons, there are many stories of teamwork between Australians and their allies. The Battle of the Bismarck Sea is a great example. You had Australians and Americans working together on a mission in the South Pacific. The Australian bowfighter pilot's job was to take out the Japanese fleet defences for the American bombers. Bruce Robertson, our 100-year-old wireless operator, now stationed in New Guinea, says he listened to the events unfold over the radio. And uh, I was listening in on all this. I was listening to the battle in case one of our aircraft was in trouble. The Australians, they were quiet. We had, Australian Air Force was uh, wireless silence. You, you only spoke if you had to, or we used Morse code, otherwise the enemy hears you but not so with the Americans. And they could see these bowfighters still flitting among the ships. They were, they were going from ship to ship and flying all over, wonderful photos. And uh, the Americans were, uh, oh, they, look at those Australians down there. They were really giving it, those sons of so-and-sos. Oh, gosh, look, aren't they fantastic? They're our brothers. Oh, they're colossal. Look at this going on. They were loving those Australians. I can't describe it any differently. The admiration and love was in the air in a battle. And these are tough fellas and so on, with expletives all over the place. And uh, it it made you feel pretty good. We knew the battle had been won just from listening in there. The battle may have been won, but no one expected what was to happen next. An audacious attack that would catch everyone by surprise. Jap submarines invade Sydney Harbour. Two torpedoes found their mark before the invaders were blasted to the bottom. This Morse code hit me in the ears, very loud, and I couldn't write it down. Didn't make our letters. Not one of our letters came through. And it just struck me, it's got to be Japanese. So I screamed out, it's Japanese here. This war is close by to Australia now. This is our war. Australia was just helpless. We had nothing, really. Our warships were in the Mediterranean, in the North Sea. What about us? That's next time on My Life at War. This series is brought to you by Uniting. It wouldn't have been possible without the incredible veterans currently living in Uniting residential aged care throughout New South Wales and the ACT. You can see their service photos, exclusive videos, and so much more at uniting.org slash veterans. There's a link in the show notes. To make sure you don't miss an episode, click on the subscribe button in your podcast app. It's free. If you like the episode, please leave us a review. We really appreciate your feedback and it helps other people find the show. 
This episode was produced by Tribecast Media and was created and written by me, Lee Taylor. And me, Jefferson Spratt. Post-production by Deadset Studios, including story editing from Kelly Reardon and sound design by Bryce Halliday. A special thanks as well to David Wilson, our war historian. <laughs>